Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates for conversations around how their internal work in the process is informing their life outside the process, how their spirit and how their love is living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning, and today on the show we have Tim Callen. Tim, well, let's just say Tim was in the National Guard for 34 years, uh, and for seven of those years, he was the military aide to the governor. He also was, as a unique role after retiring, became a teacher, a facilitator at the Hoffman Institute. And then he moved up the ranks to become the vice president and chief administrative officer. It's great to have Tim with us today. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Tim, how are you feeling in this moment? Well, I'm feeling very vulnerable right now. And I have actually been feeling vulnerable since I was asked to do this. I'm feeling also ready to do this, too. You mentioned at the beginning... Well, what do they want from me? What the hell do I know? Yeah, well, uh, it's been a while since I've been with the Hoffman Institute. That just came up as it's a pattern that comes up once in a while. What do I have to say? Especially after all a number of years. But yeah, that's the first thing. Why are they asking me? Well, welcome back. It's great to have you. And um, I think it's going to be a great conversation. Will you share a little bit about how you learned about the process. How did you come to know about Hoffman? I was actually in a therapy session with my wife, Ginny, and we were we were in therapy because she was in hospice. She had been suffering from both lupus and breast cancer for, for many years, and we knew we needed some assistance. The doctors had basically said, it's, it's time to just try and be as comfortable as you can because all the options were gone. So we had this wonderful therapist and we were sitting there talking to him one day and he was in a conversation with Ginny and he just looked over at me like mid-sentence practically with Ginny and he said, you know, Tim, I think you would really like the Hoffman process. And then he looked back at Jenny and continued on his conversation with her. And something just really came over me, you know, like a feeling in my body and an emotional feeling along with that, that I was being called forth to something. And I didn't even know what it was, but it was like, those are the things I pay attention to, those kinds of feelings and messages. So, so that's how I heard about it at first. And I went to, or got home. The next day, I well, I looked them up, and then the next day, I called the institute to get some information. I talked to Liza and Grassi, and I told her that I was not in a position to go anywhere for now because because of the condition of my wife. And she was so understanding, and she asked if it was okay if she checked in with me once in a while. And I, I told her, of course. And maybe every three months or so, I'd get a call. And she never asked me to do the process when she'd call. She was checking in with me to see how I was doing. Eventually, Ginny passed. 
And interestingly, the next day, Liza called. She wouldn't have known that. And I told her what had happened. And we just decided to talk. You know, I think it was in a couple weeks or, or something like that. And so that's, that's how I found out about the process. I followed, you know, my inner guidance that this is something important, even though that's all I knew. And I ended up about six months later, after that call from Liza, I actually ended up at the process. Tim, I want to ask you about that inner guidance, because for a lot of people, it's like, what is inner guidance? What are the what are the ways I can listen to my inner guidance? How does my inner guidance talk to me? And so when you mention your inner guidance and listening to it, what do you mean? I know it's different for different people. For me, it's it actually starts with a knowing. I know people get direct verbiage sometimes that your guidance is go do this or do that or for me, it's it's this sense that there's something here that I need to pay attention to. I need to be open to what's going to follow, and I and that for me that is primarily has to do with my body to be real attentive to what's happening in my body. It's also to ask for guidance. I ask my spiritual self for guidance often. But that's how it starts. It's like a knowing that I'm going to do something and there aren't any words attached to it. Like I'm drawn to this idea of the Hoffman process just because of the way it was communicated with me and something inside that I really didn't, couldn't relate to in the moment said, follow this, follow this. Don't, don't ignore what's going on here. I love that. So, so you, you go to the Hoffman process, a widow. At that point, how are you dealing with the grief, the loss of Ginny, your wife? She had passed about, by that point, I'd say nine months prior. And I was blessed to have a community of friends that were very supportive of me. Uh, I dealt with the sadness that I thought was grief, and I came to learn that there is this sadness is just a part of grief. And I did what what so many people advise you to do. I kept busy. I, I eventually learned that keeping busy is a way of distracting myself from grieving, from fe- from feel. I would say from feeling until I went to the process. I see. So, so the advice that you got, you later realized may not have been the best advice. And it was just a prolonging of the feelings that would remain there until you dealt with them. Yeah, I think so. I think people are really wanting to be helpful. And what a lot of people do or don't do, I should say, is allow themselves to feel. So, Tim, are you keeping busy? The first sentence or two out of almost every phone call for a while, I learned later that pattern resided with me, within me anyway, and I had from childhood to do things to avoid deep feeling. And so it was, I was, it was very easy for me to follow their guidance to start with. 
until I started doing work in the process in which I opened myself up to just deeper work and to give myself permission to feel what I needed to feel. Okay, so that's how you showed up to the process. So take us into your Hoffman process experience. Where did that story begin to be rewritten about distracting, staying busy so that you're going to be okay? And when did that, how did that come undone during your process? What moment in time? Well, I think that it didn't truly come undone for a good amount of time, meaning everything I did in the process prepared me, taught me to open myself up to be emotionally available, to be willing to just take a risk. And I was a risk taker anyway, professionally, but that's different than taking an emotional risk of, of uh, opening myself up, opening my heart up. Uh, listening to um, and checking in with what's really going on with me. So, so the first day that I was in the process, coming from working in in the transformational workshop and retreat world for for a while, I basically internally criticized just about everything I heard because they were doing it different than we were doing it. I talk about distracting yourself at the start of the process. And so that was going on, the, the, this little thing. I was noticing everything, that uh, comparing with my prior experience. The first night of the process, we had, uh, towards the end, we had a, a visualization, which the process is so rich with. And um, it really, the essence and the idea of of a spiritual self just sort of, it's like, I, that's what I came there for. I didn't know that. And the next morning, I got up so full of energy and ready to take on, get everything I possibly could out of the process because I had just really realized how I was sabotaging myself with all that chatter and dualistic thinking, et cetera. So, so I then went from that day, that next day, through the end of the process, I may, I probably have never worked so hard. I just look for every possibility. I was like a sponge. And then that all set me up for the last day when, when we were given two or three hours off. It was actually the last evening of the process. We were given two or three hours off to do some writing and just relax. And so I went back to my cabin. And I was sitting there looking out into the forest, just really just relaxing. And, uh, but I was also, I felt so connected to nature and uh, like I belonged there, even though I was sitting inside in my cabin. And I was just there and, and being. I was just sort of in a being space, not thinking, just being, just, I guess, just enjoying where I was in that moment or in that half hour or so, there was a point when I had this, it was like a message. It was a sense. It was this understanding 
there were words attached to this. And those words were, you need to go home. And I knew exactly what that meant. It did not mean the home I came from when I went to do the process. That was the home Ginny and I had lived in, and I still lived in. That was the home I came from. The home, that message was to go back to the home that Ginny and I lived in years before, years before. And we moved out of there because it was up in the woods. It was deep in nature. And it was not safe for her to be there because of her medical needs. And this, this knowing I needed to go back there, that's what the whole week set me up for, a lot more than that. But that was the most important thing. Let me ask you a question because uh, I noticed when you, when you shared the message you got in that moment, there was some emotion. So I'm just kind of curious, what is it about receiving that message that brings emotion? As I reflect back on it now, it had such an impact on me that that I had I wasn't thinking all this then, but as I reflect back on it, it was just such an impactful knowing about there's more for me. There's another step. And it changed my life that I followed that. I followed that guidance. And I just feel so grateful to this moment. And 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 that's the emotion that was coming up for me, really, that it was I, I wasn't thinking this directly, but I think somewhere deep inside too, it was like Oh God, what are you uncovering here? And I was, and I was willing to take that risk. And to, I just knew I had to go there. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got there, but I knew I had to go there. So, and like I say, I think the emotions is particularly strong around uh, how it opened up a huge new aspect of life for me. Not the message per se, but that I followed that and I did it. Mm, mm, I love that you trusted that message. Um, I'm just so moved as you share this, Tim, because, you know, one of the things in the process we ask uh, students to do is to connect with their spirit guide. And um, it's this uh, loving, wise being that offers support and wisdom to us. Um, And also, what a spirit guide does is really allow us to consider that we can get support from the universe around us. That when we open up ourselves and we surrender to the world, to the universe, that it will support us in our being. And that's a, that's a powerful moment. I was right with you there as you were looking out the window into the woods, receiving that message from your room. And so, and so you leave the process. Do you collect your things and move back to the house that you and Ginny first lived in? Yes, it took me a while. I, I sold my house in town and uh, we had kept that house. Uh, so it was about four months later is when I actually moved into that house where Ginny and I had lived, yeah. 
And what was that like to go back to that place that you shared with your wife and yet now she wasn't with you? It took me a while to get moved in. The doing things, you know, the keeping busy, although I needed to get settled and then allow myself to know at that time, what's next? I've done this now. So when I had a feeling that I was settled, I'd say about 10 days, two weeks, I had brought the recliner chair that she sat in when she was out of bed through the last six months or so of her life. I had brought that with me. And she was an award-winning quilter. Uh, She had a passion for making quilts. I had, still do actually have several of her, several of her quilts, but I had one special one that she had made for me. And I sat down in that chair, looked out through, through the windows into the forest, covered myself with the quilt. And I just sat there for a while. I just knew I should be there, but I, it's not like you flip a switch. I, I did not have this thing about, okay, now I get to start grieving. That It was like I just needed to stay present to myself and follow whatever guidance came to me. So finally, I was sitting there, this came to me, and I just said, I spoke this out loud, softly, and what I spoke was, grief, take me where I need to go. Like it was a being even though I know it's not. So that's what I did. And, and then I just sat there for a little while. And then all of a sudden, I was just overcome with what I could then learn later on, say, well, that was a start. That was a start. I started to cry. I started to feel the missing. I started to reflect on who she was and, and, and how she was in my life, just what kind of a person she was. But that was between the sobs. And it was between the deepest level of, I can only use the word sadness, but there's something deeper than that I'd ever felt in my life. It, and then it would go on for a while. And then I'd, I'd be able to, oh my goodness, how can, I keep, how can I keep doing this? I'm not sure if I can keep doing it. So I'd get up and get a cup of coffee or do something, go outside in nature. And maybe another time during the day, I would do that same thing. It wasn't turning the feelings off and on, but I was doing other things to, to nurture myself, like being out in nature and, of course, eating and that sort of thing. The feelings were still there, but not, not like I had experienced that I just described to you. Tim, such a valuable, such a powerful model of strength, in particular as a man, to to surrender yourself to all the grief that was available to you and not to do it from an intellectual place. It was as if you were were surrendering and I'm going to make sense of this later, but in the moment, I'm going to allow the experience first. Yes, there was no intellectual involvement in this. It was turning myself over to what I needed to do and what I needed to feel. And that, I had the feeling numerous times, and it didn't always happen in that chair. I might be just about to fall asleep, you know, at night or something, but I did use that chair 
for a lot of that and, and her quilt. But it was so deep, it, quite frankly, there are times it was terrifying. It was terrifying because I thought, I, I'll never get out of here. Or maybe I'm so depressed, which I actually wasn't depressed at all, but I'm thinking, what's, what's happening to me? And am I okay? And then just letting go and letting it happen. But I had times that I was really scared because I thought I'll never come, I'll never come back. I may, I may be stuck here for the rest of my life. You know, it's not rational. I'll never come out the other side. I'll never get through this. So Tim, I imagine it's not every day that you describe this, this journey that you went through. So what's it like to, to share it out loud in this moment? It's a very emotional experience. There's a lot of joy, of feelings of joy that I am who I am now because of what I did, what I did back then. And so it's like, and it's an honor to be able to talk about it. I, I, once in a while, I'll have a conversation with somebody. And I did some writing about it oh, a long time ago, actually as part of an art project I was involved with. But it doesn't happen very often to the, to the degree which, you know, your questions bring this up in me. But it, it's, uh, it's cleansing. It's a cleansing feeling to relate it to, to somebody else. You know, I'm a great fan of um, David White, the poet, and probably the shortest poem that he's ever written sticks in my mind and in my heart. It's those who will not slip beneath the still surface on the well of grief, turning down through its black water to the place we cannot breathe. We'll never know the source from which we drink, the secret water cold and clear, nor find in the darkness glimmering the small round coins thrown by those who wished for something else. And that is so powerful for me when I heard him speak that because that's really what all, I think I'm generalizing, talking about other people, but I think that's what we want to do because to avoid the pain, um, those who wish for something else. And I have this gratitude towards myself, actually, for, for my willingness to do this because that's what opened me up to the rest of my life. It is actually from the time I went in the process till I went through that. It's when I went through the doors into the second half of life for me, which is emotional and spiritual maturity, knowing that I had way more to offer. I also had this idea that I didn't ever want to get in another relationship. Just the pain, you know, do I want to take a chance of like losing another partner? Tim, this this idea of this searing searing pain that you just referenced and this terror of will will i be stuck here forever will this be a a, a a life sentence and i love how you referenced the joy of and gratitude you have for yourself because you wouldn't be the man you are today if you hadn't have done that work and so you you reference 
another relationship and that kind of no way, no way in hell am I going to do this again? This is so painful. Why would I get back in a relationship? So what happened? Take us into this next chapter, this second part of your life as you talk about what happened. I felt I would be content with great friends. So what happened was in allowing myself to go into that depth emotionally, there's a saying that grief is the other side of love. I feel like it it broke my heart, first of all, and then and I had, I was, I felt my broken heart and I experienced it. And then I realized that when I had completed this level of grief, that I had, what I had really done is opened my heart to the possibilities. So um, I can fast forward about three years. I was offered the opportunity to, to become a teacher, to go through teacher training, to apply for teacher training. So I did, and um, I was accepted. And my class of about, I think it was seven people to start, one of those people was a woman from Chicago, and I flew in to pick her up at the airport to take her to our first orientation, our class. Her name is uh, Laurel. And eventually, I fell in love with her. We fell in love with each other. And we got married. We both became teachers. The process and then what the process opened me up to brought me to that point in my life of actually being able to, to allow myself to love and actually just as important to be loved, to actually experience someone else's love. To let it in, to receive it. Yeah, exactly. Because I think that was my defense. Uh, I'll just not receive love if I can just have friends and not have my heart so open that it could bust open again. Then that would be just fine. And it turned out it would have been an incomplete life. It would have been an incomplete life. And and Laurel and I are together 17 years later uh, from when we got married. Yeah, that's that's how it's extended out into my life. I love that, the idea that a, a broken heart is, is not a fixed state. It actually is a breaking open so that the heart can be more whole. And so let me ask you a question. How, do, how does Ginny live, if at all, in your marriage with Laurel? How, how do you navigate uh, having lost someone so special in the recreation of another marriage now for 17 years with Laurel that's so wonderful? Well, first of all, so incredibly blessed that Laurel, as our relationship developed, I think even prior to getting married, she knew a lot about Laurel because she was curious. Wait, so Laurel knew a lot about Ginny? Laurel knew a lot about Ginny because she was curious. She asked me about, about Ginny. And at one point, she told me, she said, you know, I think I have a special relationship with Ginny. My own internal, you know, chatter was, is it okay to bring something up about Ginny or this or that? And, of course, I had things like I mentioned the quilts and also her paintings and all. And it was so natural. Laurel was just so open 
to, um, yes, Ginny had been my wife and she was now, and they weren't exclusive of each other, I guess, because she, like I say, she said she felt she had a special relationship with Ginny. She welcomed Ginny into our relationship. And by the way, when Ginny was dying, like a couple days before she died, Ginny was the kind of person that could look you in the eye and say, okay, listen here. And this is one of those listen here moments. She said, if you want to be in another relationship and you, you have somebody, she says, you better go for it. Cause you know, that's not always the case. There's, um, this is on her deathbed practically. And there are some, I've known, I've coached enough and worked in this, been in this work long enough to know people whose new partner in life doesn't want to even hear about the last partner, whether it was divorce or whether it was death. I couldn't be more blessed. Ginny and Laurel are about as opposite each other as you could imagine. You're kidding. So personality-wise, they're very different. Oh, very different, very different. So it wasn't, Laurel was not a replacement. On, let me tell you, that was, it was not anything like that. It was like, this is a totally new person in my life, and I love her and she loves me. And she was so open to supporting me and that I had lost a partner, even though it had been a few years at that point. So it all blended. It blended well. We once in a while we'll I'll say, oh, you know, Jenny and I did that a long time, and we'll have a little talk about it, or she'll ask me something about Jenny. So I, I can't even begin to tell you how blessed I am that all that came together the way it did. Have you worked in the grieving space of helping uh, people move beyond grief? You have such a visceral cellular memory around it. You have such a rich experience. Has that been part of your coaching? It has not been part of my coaching. I've had uh, friends who have been going through loss that I have had conversations with. Most of the coaching that I've done since I left the process has been on with people who were not in a relationship and wanted to be in one, working with people on how to clear the space so that they could have an open heart and look at the patterns that, that they've developed to get in the way of their being in a relationship. So I've never dealt with anybody that had lost somebody as far as a coaching experience was concerned. I do talk to people about it that have, have an opening or I'll say, hey, you know, I've been through something like this. I, it's always like, I don't know how you've, you're feeling or what you're feeling, but I know what I felt. And if you ever want to talk, I'd be glad to talk to you. And that's usually been with a friend. And sometimes it doesn't happen. I see. So it's it's impacted your friendships and, and some people may not take you up on it, but at least you've put it out there. So Tim, where are you now in your life? What is up for you in your day-to-day life with Laurel? Well, first of all, in my life with Laurel, uh, there's a benefit by uh, incredible benefit to be married to a Hoffman teacher. You know, it's a, we're a Hoffman couple, even though we haven't taught the process for quite a while. So we continue to work on our relationship. Actually, during this uh, isolation period, even though we both, we're both at home a lot, Laurel is an executive coach and she deals with her clients by phone and I'm retired. 
So um, we have a lot of time together and we both like our own time separately, but it does, it has given us this opportunity to, to get closer to each other, to deal with um, what are, what are some of the triggers that we still experience to do some um, kind of dreaming about what we want to do next as far as when this COVID is over enough that we can travel and we're planning some exciting trips. So we have come, we, we have come closer. We've come a long ways in the, all the time we've been here. I don't think we've ever been together. I mean, I, I don't think we've ever taken our relationship for granted or thought we got a pass because we were Hoffman teachers. The one thing we learned, the principle to never do, and that is we don't point out each other's patterns ever, like you do professionally maybe with, <laughs> with, the, with the, somebody going through the process. Uh, I also find I truly enjoy being outside in nature. We live at the foot of the Sandia Mountains, and uh, part of my spiritual practice, actually, is to be in nature. And even though I'm in the high desert country of um, northern New Mexico, I, I love the forest, maybe because the forest has such a strong role in how I got here in the first place. And forest is very available to us. So I'm up hiking at about 10 to 10,300 feet quite often. So I get out in nature. I've been involved with a lot of men's work. One of the things that we prescribe, encourage, is for men to wander. It's different than going for a walk. To wander is just to go out and move your body and not especially have a destination. It's to be in the trees. I communicate with nature. When I go to the forest, I actually ask permission to enter uh, the forest. It's part of my ritual when I, I go up. I, I continue to grow spiritually because I continue to develop my relationship with uh, what we, we call not only just nature, but the other than human world. And then the, the, the other thing is I am very much involved with working with men's groups part of an international organization for men's spiritual growth and emotional maturity. We sit in council. We have retreats. So those are the things that I'm mainly involved in at this, at this point in my life. Tim, I love, um, I love a, a kind of a nice way to, to bring this conversation to a close. Your, your work with men and the importance of men wandering and wandering with no destination. And you also reference the mountains and the woods and um, the power of nature to uh, fill spirit. And then you started off, which I just have to highlight, this piece about no pattern policing of your partner's patterns. I love that. So, I am grateful for this time, for your, your energy, Tim. We haven't met, but I have loved this conversation. And I'm just curious, what it ha what's it been like for you to remember Ginny, to talk about your marriage with Laurel, to go back to your Hoffman process time, to really bring this retrospective to your life? What What's that like for you? In a way, it's like a spiritual experience, uh, certainly emotional. It 
allows me to, I think like what I'm feeling right now is to do something maybe I, I don't do enough. And that is to just be so grateful for what I have received. Not only, I mean, a huge part of it is the love of Ginny and the love of Laurel, but also the opportunity to teach the process, to work with people who, who are on their journey the men's work as well as when I was in the process. I love teaching the process. Uh, I felt every every day of the process, students were always mirroring something back to me. So I just it, I feel grateful, and and I I'm grateful for the way you have asked the questions, particularly that it wasn't an interview. I I really noted and felt your curiosity about me and about what I was up to and what I was doing and how I was feeling. So that's kind of pretty much sums up how my experience of, of this great opportunity is talk about life. Yes, exactly. Let's talk about life. If only more conversations had a little more texture and depth to them. Um, well, you and I passed uh, at different times in our Hoffman journeys. When I came on, you had already uh, left the Institute. So it has, I've heard about you. And so I'm grateful, even more grateful to have this conversation. Tim, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.